everyone, and welcome to the podcast. In today's episode, we're focusing on the 2S LGBTQIA plus community and affirming ways people self-identify. I'm Kelly. I've got Ryan in the co-host seat today, and we are joined by our guests, Kai Scott and Kyle Wilby. Kai Scott is a gender strategist at TransFocus Consulting, and Kyle Wilby is an associate professor in the College of Pharmacy at Dalhousie University. Welcome, Kai and Kyle. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So we have Kyle and Kai's bios posted in the episode notes, um, but I'm hoping each of you can give us a brief interview of your background and really the path that brought you to us here today. Kai, why don't we start with you? Sure. My name is Kai Scott, and I use the pronouns he and him. And as you mentioned, I'm with TransFocus Consulting. I'm a social scientist by trade. So over my 15-year career, I've looked at complex social issues, first in the mining industry. So that might seem a bit odd compared to what I do now. Uh, But I looked at the social impacts of mining on communities, in particular Indigenous communities uh, in northern parts of Canada. And then from there, I shifted into uh, understanding that there were still issues in my own community as part of the trans and non-binary and two-spirit communities. I realized that there were some tremendous gaps and could lend my lived experience and my professional experience to the mix and then started TransFocus Consulting to help out with those. So now we provide a a blend of education as well as uh, some structural changes to systems, procedures, and spaces to increase gender diversity. Thanks, Kai. Kyle? All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Kyle Wilby, and uh, I'm an associate prof here at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Uh, I'm originally from Saskatoon, uh, so from out west, and have a bit of an interesting career where I've spent time in Vancouver. I worked in the Middle East and Qatar for six years at Qatar University, then went to New Zealand, worked at the University of Otago for three years, and landed in Halifax and Dalhousie about two years ago now. I do identify as part of the 2S LGBTQ community and launched an education and research program while I was living in New Zealand and have really picked up on that here in Canada, doing community work with the members of the, the population, as well as implementing a core integrated 2S LGBTQ plus curriculum for pharmacy students as part of our new PharmD program. So very nice to be here speaking with you today. Thanks, Kyle. Um, interestingly, I was preparing for today's podcast and looking at some of the research that you've done, and I came across your systematic review of the health benefits of camel milk which I'm assuming <laughs> comes from your work in Qatar, hey? Yeah, you, if you look at, if you Google Scholar Me, you'll see a variety of publications, but I never thought that paper would be in my top five cited, but uh, here we are, so. Here we are, here <laughs> yeah. we are, great. Do we want to define 2S LGBTQIA? Okay, let's talk. Let's talk about 2S LGBTQIA+. So, The different terms, so the 2S refers to two-spirit, which is an Indigenous-specific term that can span both gender diversity and or sexual diversity, depends on the individual, what's at play for them. There's a lot more that I could say about that, especially as it relates to colonialism and the impact on two-spirit folks, particularly driving them underground or completely eliminating them from their nation's their, their roles within their nations. So there's a lot of harm that they're unpacking and reclaiming uh, as part of their journey. The L is lesbian, so women who love women. Uh, gay is anyone attracted to the same gender. It could be two men, two women, two non-binary folks. Bisexual, so anybody who is attracted to two genders. 
some people may say more. Uh, depends. There's a bit of flexibility in that. Mostly people think men and women, but it could be women and non-binary folks, men and non-binary folks. So depends on the individual. T, transgender. So anybody whose gender is different than their sex assigned at birth. Q, queer. Or it can also refer to questioning folks um, who are just trying to sort out their identities, whether gender or sexuality. LGBTQI, <laughs> um, I being intersex. So those are folks who are born neither or later develop neither female nor male in terms of their sex. Uh, there's a lot more that I could say on how they face, unfortunately, and very traumatically can be forced into surgeries at birth to conform to either female or male. That's how binary we are in our medical understanding of sex. A uh, can refer to either asexual, so somebody who does not have a uh, sexual attraction uh, to any gender, or agender, has no sense of gender. And then plus is there to indicate a whole myriad of other terms that you know we could keep going on, uh, like pansexuality, gender diverse, uh, gender fluidity, those kinds of terms. So one of the things that we talked about, what we wanted our listeners to walk away from the podcast, was the whys and the hows. So why don't we start today with whys? I'm interested to hear from both of you. Uh, why EDI training is important, why pharmacy professionals should be learning and listening and hearing more in this space. So Kyle, why don't we start with you? Sure. So it's been really interesting working in academia over the last 11 years because these conversations really started around cultural competency and how we communicate and interact with different people from different populations. But that really was kind of putting things as, as, as the other, we call it, othering, where it was kind of calling out different groups and trying to change our behavior, specifically how we work with those groups. And we have to adjust our ways for those groups in particular. What I like about EDI, and although I don't know if it's necessarily the solution or not, but it's really a set of principles, a set of interventions and things that we can do to fix things from the ground up. So it is about that communication. It is about adapting our healthcare and our, our services to different populations. Um, but it's also about working with those populations, seeing everyone as a person and looking at the integration between populations of how we can actually improve care for all people and less about worrying about how we specifically interact with, with one person or another. I think it's also really important for students in particular and, and practicing pharmacists to be exposed. What's come out of my research is people are aware that there might be health disparities there, um, but don't really know how to go about making change. And so the more we learn about it, the more we actually make it a priority in our education and in our practices, the more I think we can actually make really simple changes and simple fixes um, that can improve someone's health care. That's why I think it, it's important. And I feel that this I don't want to say new trend, but um, how we're now focusing on EDI as a whole and this holistic set of interventions, I think, um, is probably hoping going to take us a bit further. I heard you say, I know something that I think about a lot is you don't know what you don't know. And having these conversations has, for me, kind of shone a light on some of the things that I didn't even realize were important or that I should be thinking about. So Kai, thoughts from you? Yeah, I like what uh, Kyle had to say in terms of just where EDI has started and evolved to and the potential for greater inclusion and consideration of folks in the 2S LGBTQIA communities. Uh, I would add to that that there are 
to us LGBTQIA folks everywhere. And it's really just an acknowledgement that this could be somebody who's a patient. This could be somebody who's an employee or a contractor. So really, if you look at the stats, which we're starting to get a lot more of, you have one in 25 that are sexually diverse. We have one in 300 that are gender diverse. So really that gives you some view if you have hundreds or thousands of employees or, or people you're interacting with that somewhere along the line, you're going to be a part of somebody's life, whether short-term, long-term or whatnot. So it's really important to be prepared and to be able to step up to the plate and help somebody if there's a particular need or just to allow that person to be a part of the culture and the care that they need. So it's uh, really important to have that understanding and that there's a either positive feedback loop that being, can be created in terms of how we serve patients, informs how and people are observing if they're employees, whether they're out or not, that can inform how they feel included and vice versa too, right? I would also say beyond inclusion, what I get excited about is actually innovation. And so the unique lenses, perspectives, experiences of 2S LGBTQIA folks actually can help to leverage important changes, especially within healthcare. We already know from many different accounts, whether Indigenous, women, racialized folks, really there's so many things that really need to be changed. And I think once we understand the experiences of marginalized folks, that can give us a view to how we can make things better for everyone. Hey, now I just, I got to rewind for a second. <laughs> I heard some numbers and I, I had to pause a little bit when I heard those numbers. So one in 25 mm -hmm. identify as sexually diverse, one in 300 people mm -hmm. identify as gender diverse. Can we just talk a little bit about sexually diverse versus gender diverse? Just let's put some, some thoughts into these terms. Remind me what they, what they're about. Sure. It's really important because for the general population, oftentimes this can be a bit confusing at face value because we've got acronyms uh, that represent many different aspects of the communities that have, you know, some things in common, obviously, but also some very distinct needs as well. So when I talk about sexual diversity, it's about who we're attracted to in terms of sexually, romantically, and otherwise. So that's about relationships between people. When I talk about gender diversity, it's people's own relationship to their own gender identity, their deeply felt sense of their gender. Sometimes that's aligned with how they were assigned at birth uh, in terms of their sex. Other times it's different. And I won't go too far into terminology because <laughs> we could just have the whole episode be that, but I uh, just wanted to provide some distinction uh, where if there's a difference between somebody's gender and their sex, there's some you know, additional needs and experiences that, that, that can present challenges just by virtue of how things have been set up, especially in healthcare. Awesome. And for our listeners, I know that the some of the coursework that we have already engaged with has some more information about terminology. And certainly we can include some of that in, again, the episode notes too, because it is important, right? We need to get these words right. Well, I think the only point that I wanted to reinforce is how you said 
people might be out or not out. So one thing that's really interesting, I think, with our community is people may be concealing and we don't know when they present to the pharmacy or present in our classrooms that they could be sexually or and or gender diverse. And I think that's a really important thing to consider because sometimes I think when we look at cultural competency or EDI, we're always trying to put a picture to it. But it's really what Kai said, it's inclusion, it's affirmation, it's innovation as a whole to, to care for all people. Okay. I, was gonna, I wasn't going to jump into the how yet, Kyle, but we got to go there now. <laughs> so this idea that some people might be out, some people that aren't, as a healthcare provider, how can I recognize that, honor that, and yet have some sort of approach to everyone knowing that they may, may not be out yet? Like, are there kind of some universal things that I can say, or, you know, how do I kind of manage this and deal not deal with it, but yeah, how do how do we honor this um, as healthcare providers? Kai, did you want to talk about kind of before I go into maybe some pharmacy specifics, but some like things around gender inclusive language, gender neutral language, all those types of things that I think relate to Kelly's point? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Such a good point that in our day-to-day -in -day interactions, there's actually a lot at play that we may not know. We kind of uh, act from automatic uh, assumptions or actions uh, based on either how someone looks or, uh, you know, what what the shape of their body is or whatnot. And we may be make, jumping to conclusions about what somebody's either gender identity is, or sometimes we may even make conclusions about somebody's sexual orientation, right? If we see femininity in men or who we are categorizing as men, we might be making conclusions that this is a gay man. And similarly, uh, with gender identity, we might be thinking, oh, this is a feminine looking person uh, in the shape of a particular body. And so this must be a woman. And then we ascribe pronouns to that based on that. And so as a result, there's kind of all these um, uh, split sec second decisions when we're just first meeting somebody that we may not be aware of. And when we slow down the, those frames a bit more, we can hold back on those assumptions and use instead more gender neutral language or gender inclusive language so that we're referencing as a person, a client, a patient, or an employee and holding off until we get to know someone a little bit better to understand more if they're you know if they're going to share more uh, about their gender identity or they may just want to keep it at pronouns and that's it for me it's more about creating the safe place where people feel that they can share more if they desire to but at the end of the day we don't really need as much information as we think we do and instead it's about resorting to gender neutral language or gender neutral pronouns such as the singular use of they them and we already do that in society uh if somebody leaves behind an umbrella uh, we typically say, I hope they come back and get it, right? So really, we're just um, applying that to more uh, expanded circles uh, and situations. We just got to stop for one sec, Kai, because there's just so much there. So <laughs> they, them, using the they, them, using people's names, right, mm -hmm. before we actually know what pronouns they are using. Um, and Ryan, I'm not sure it's coming up for you, but this is something that I've been, I was thinking about as you were sharing that information with us, Kai. As a healthcare provider, I think we rely a lot on our intuition and our previous experience, right? We talk a lot about how much our experience is important. And I think in this space, I know how much my assumptions have gotten me into trouble, how much they've, they've helped me in the past, but also how much they have gotten me into trouble. And so I appreciate what you just said, Kai, about kind of checking our assumptions, right? And that 
I think we all naturally just kind of have some certain ideas or things that come up just because of our experiences or again, what we might call our intuition, but we really need to check those, right? We need to check them. They might not be correct. If I could uh, actually take a moment, Kai, pardon me, I have a question. Um, so uh, when we actually met a couple of days ago, um, I, I didn't mention this, but um, I did want to say that I actually identify as a member of the 2S LGBTQIA plus community as well. What is a good way um, if we're, you know, meeting somebody for the first time and say they are misgendering, what, what's a, what's an appropriate response or clarification for something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very common scenario, sadly, especially for folks who use gender neutral pronouns, uh, because we have very little understanding in our society about people who are non-binary or beyond the the genders of man and woman, boy and girl. And so as a result, they experience a lot of people using the incorrect pronoun for them, basically based on looking at somebody and and making that conclusion for them. And so, of course, if people uh, accidentally do that, people don't mean any harm. And if somebody is able to correct them, that's fantastic. I would say more often than not, people do not correct. They don't feel necessarily safe or they don't know if they'll be taken seriously if they mention something. But if they do, that's really fantastic. And to receive that correction and, um, you know, apologize and make uh, the correction oneself. So something like, my bad, I meant she, and maybe even something like, I wanna practice this a little bit more, right? And then that's it. Really simple matter of fact, going on uh, about the apology can make it super awkward for the other person. So we have seen scenarios where people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. This is the fifth time I've done it. You must think I'm a horrible person. And, and kind of then it switches back to them uh, and that can make it more difficult versus it's okay if you need to process that, but maybe with somebody else. Yeah, and to, to add on to Kai's point, so I had a situation when I lived in New Zealand where it was a, wasn't about gender, it was about my sexuality and a healthcare professional. I had said, oh, I came here with my partner. And then the healthcare professional said, oh, like, what does your wife do? And I said, oh, actually, it's my husband. And instead of simply just saying, oh, sorry, and moving on, because previous to this, we were talking about restaurants, we were talking about things in the city I was living in. She just got very flustered profusely apologized and made it so awkward for me as a patient. So um, again, I, I really like Kai's approach of, you know, really being, you know, meaningful, but discreet about it and really not trying to make it, you know, that big kind of deal or big production that we sometimes see. It really comes down to that environment and rapport and trust with your healthcare professional. So in my research, um, when you're asking about how to make you know spaces inclusive, how to make them affirmative, one of the biggest things that comes out is that patients just really want rapport and trust. And that doesn't have to be, let's talk about the weekend or, you know, be your best friend, but it could simply be reading that patient. Maybe they want to have a conversation. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're really happy with you because, you know, you have a limited interaction, but you provide the information in a way that they feel is safe to them. And as someone who's lied to healthcare professionals for a large part of my life, I know what that's like where you might not think that someone's safe, but as soon as you have that feeling and you have that environment that really supports inclusivity, that's where someone might actually confide in you or um, be able to tell you their sexual or gender identity which could be really useful at times. Maybe there's times when they could be referred to things such as PrEP for um, people who identify as high risk for particularly gay bisexual men who have sex with men and transgender women. 
or you know maybe there's other interventions that could be particular such as HPV vaccinations um, for part of the community that's actually funded for specific aspects of the community um, that you wouldn't have had access to or you wouldn't be able to tell that person if, if they didn't have that relationship with you so I think that environment and that rapport and trust is really such a critical point. Kyle what what kind of words would we use to say to someone that it is important to me as a healthcare professional to know your gender or your sexual identity. When do we need to use this? I heard you already mentioned things. There may be some clinical situations that this might come up, but you know, I, one of the things that I struggle with is sometimes finding the words and I, I'm always thoughtful that I'm using the right words. And so it helps me to have just a bit of a framework. Do you have something like that? Great question. So. What I find in the community that I talk to, it's that actual verbal interaction that can be really confronting. And so pharmacies that have implemented an intake form where you have the option to disclose your sexuality, disclose your gender identity, it's sometimes a lot easier to write something down and be documented rather than having someone, you know, so, so how, how do you identify in terms of your sexuality, right? And it's it's that kind of face-to-face -face interaction because you don't know how that person's going to react in that moment. And that's a lot of, I think, what makes the community a bit uncomfortable or fearful in those situations and it puts you almost at direct risk of that stigma or discrimination that you might have experienced in the past. So community speaks really highly about intake forms. And then if someone gains that comfortability, every time that they're in, hey, do you have anything to change or add to the intake form or, you know, show them the screen, is anything here to review anything else you'd like to like to add could actually be a great way to, to gain that information. If it's something, Kelly, that uh, you do need to have that verbal interaction with, um, I might rely on Kai a bit here a little bit more, but the way you actually said it was quite good. <laughs> you know, there's certain conditions or there's certain things that, you know, I might be able to provide to you um, if I know your gender, sexual identity, whatever it is we're thinking about. Um, if you're comfortable sharing that with me, great. If not, that's fine. Um, I think it's really just informing the patient why you're actually asking that question and understanding that there could be some benefits in terms of services or funding or, you know, reimbursement for, for different aspects according to their care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are some great points. And especially the intake form, uh, that can be so just take off the edge. It's it's a lot to kind of jump off that cliff. But the one thing, and I don't know how much we're going to go into that, but just making sure it's it's properly set up too, because there, there can be a barrier if it's not well set up with, you know, why you're collecting it and where it goes and who has access to it and all those variables that can add you know, people just won't fill it out, number one, or they fill it out, but there's limitations to the response options and whatnot. So there's a lot there, but I think that's a really uh, key one. My uh, suggestion is always to think uh, a layer deeper than gender identity and sexual orientation to think exactly what it is that people are asking for. You might be thinking you're going you're gonna to get you know, gender identity and sexual orientation and then make conclusions based on that versus saying, okay, what specifically am I after? You know, is this a particular uh, STI situation? Is this particular things that, you know, would support this person? In which case you can say people who have or people who are or, you know, anything of that nature that you're specifying what it is exactly that you're after. And then you're able to capture everybody who that pertains to, irrespective of their gender identity, irrespective of their sexual orientation, and people can self-select in and out. And it's a little bit clearer why that's being asked. 
and we avoid the assumptions that sometimes come with just blanket statements. I heard you say something in there too, Kai, that I just want to spend a bit of time on to, to give people an opportunity to almost opt in or opt out of sharing this information. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's really key because in so many instances, unfortunately, information about 2SLGBTQIA people, but really more broadly marginalized people, uh, has been misused in so many ways, both past and present. And in that way, there's a lot of hesitation to provide that information because we have typically been not as much in control as to what our fate is, uh, especially within a medical context. And so as a result, it's really imperative to make that a voluntary thing that really it's flipping that kind of perspective in healthcare. Some people feel kind of that they ought to be given that information, that they're owed that information. And really it's actually an honor to receive that information and that you're stewards of this information in ways where you have to consider privacy, confidentiality, where this information is going to go and, and how it's going to benefit as much as possible the patient at hand. So it's a bit of a perspective shift and ties into the kind of person-centered care that you referred to at the, the top of the, the podcast. I think if you're you know, someone, you have two minutes with a patient and you have a conversation with them, and you use gender neutral language, you're able to determine, you know, we can all determine if someone's really, you know, just doesn't want to speak to you at that time, then great, provide information, let them go know that you're a safe person, though, or if they do want to disclose and have actually having conversations with them about that and, um, and being able to help navigate their care. I think it's really just about that initial way that we interact with people that that is that kind of that first impression where they might believe, you know, that you're actually a safe person there in front of you. I was going to say too that uh, I guess along with the, you know building that rapport and alluding to what um, Kai had said is that when a patient or that person is sharing that personal information with you, it's an honor to receive that. That that's one thing I wanted to like you know repeat for emphasis just because <laughs> I thought that was such a good that's such a good way to yeah to point it out and to look at it, but also to I guess reframe um, how as a as a healthcare professional how we're we're seeing that information or why we're getting that information. Like for us, we just assume, yeah, it's, you know, we need to know your name, date of birth, et cetera, et cetera, your health history. And it's, you know, just something that we do. Whereas coming from the patient perspective, you have to be able to like trust that person to, to share that information. And in turn, like if someone's giving you that information, it definitely, it is, is an honor. Like it's, it just shows that, that, that trust is there. Ryan, I wrote it down too. I like honor information. I haven't ever thought about it that way. And I just think about all of the questions we ask. Like I was just thinking, you know, when I asked someone their smoking status and instantly, you know, what I think about in my head is maybe the judgments I make, right? But just honor that, honor what they provided to you. Love, love, love it. Um, and also Kyle, like you said, the importance of control and how part of a safe environment is making sure that that person in front of us has control. Can I ask how we might check in with someone to make sure that they feel like they're in control? I don't know if there's a check-in with a person that you could actually provide. Um, for some of the, the examples that, again, come out of the, the research that I've done and the people I talk to, it's 
oh, I know that person gave me good care or they didn't, they didn't give me a dirty look or they didn't, it didn't seem like they judged me. So I'm going to go every single time when I know they work from 6 to 10 p.m. at this one pharmacy and that's when they're going to go get care. Or, oh yeah, that, that pharmacist, they always come over there, always smiling. They always, you know, ask me how I'm doing today. I'm always going to, if they're not there, I'm not going to go up to the counter. I'm going to wait until they're there in order to get care. So in terms of you know, that, that reportive element, I think it's really that, that personal aspect is, is really critical. In terms of then receiving information, um, a pharmacist who identifies as, as trans uh, in Canada uh, really enlightened me some, by saying, you know, there's lots of times when we don't even need to know like gender identity in particular, I guess pronouns basically what is one of the things that's really important because it's more about referring to the person. Gender, yes, there are specific instances, specifically again, of someone's receiving gender affirming care, but it really doesn't make a huge impact in their care. So I don't think we need to be caught up on how do we get this information? I think if that information is provided and disclosed, as Kai said, it's, it's how, what do you do with that information? And then how, how are you re interacting with that person in an inclusive and affirmative way in order to provide them um, with the care that you want to provide them with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a few things to, to kind of consider is uh, accountability. So oftentimes, you know, feedback mechanisms, even if you, you know, open with beginning of an appointment, or, you know, an interaction to say, hey, I, I really want this to go smoothly for you. And I'm open to receiving feedback either directly to me, or here's an alternative confidential online version. I, I don't know what the mechanisms are in each organization will be slightly different, but just some way of people sharing whether they had a good interaction, you know, it was a challenging interaction, some unexpected thing happened that flustered them, made them uncomfortable, made them feel like they wanted to hide. If there's pathways for that information to get in uh, to the organization or to the individual healthcare professional, that makes a huge difference. I see a tremendous disconnect in the research that we do at TransFocus, where we survey folks and trans and non-binary folks are having an awful time. And then the, the organization is none the wiser. And it's, it's a bit shocking to me, but it's just because trans and non-binary folks haven't found a pathway to tell anyone or they're afraid of coming forward and being dismissed uh, or some combination thereof, right? And so if you're able to clearly articulate how that feedback can be delivered informally or formally, that'll be tremendous in creating a stronger practices because oftentimes healthcare professionals are positioned as the experts and people can't feel like they can say anything because there's that power imbalance that exists, right? And so they're just quiet as a mouse that something has happened. And I've been in my own situations and experiences around that. And I have tremendous amount of privilege and power. And still, it was difficult to bring those things up. And I didn't know how to address them. I put my pen down when you said that <laughs> about us being perceived as the experts and the power that comes with that perception of expertise. Do you want to share a little bit more about that or just maybe create some awareness for all of us who may not have thought about ourselves as being in a position of power? So in the work that I've done, uh, people are often, as patients, there's a, there's a vulnerability that people come in, either they have a health issue or something's you know, going on for them uh, that they're needing to address. And oftentimes they're coming with trepidation 
because either it's related to their identity and they have to surface that somehow, or it's not related at all and people can bring that into the mix. And it then becomes a situation where there has to be pushback and some people feel that they can do that and self-advocate and other times either they are dealing with a bunch of other things and it's just too much to take on that amount of emotional labor to help somebody understand and or they feel like they're not able to articulate what is exactly going on or maybe they discount their own thoughts and feelings thinking well they know better right there maybe i don't see something that i don't know and so the there's a many things that can silence somebody but oftentimes and societally we've kind of put medical healthcare professionals on a bit of a pedestal as well. So those are some of the ones that come to mind immediately, but I'm curious, uh, Kyle, if you have any others to add. Yeah, I was, I was as you were speaking, I, I got reminded so much of some examples, even my own personal ones that I use sometimes in my teaching. And it's interesting because um, I always give a story about how I went to go to a dermatologist here when I moved back from New Zealand to get a mole removed. But the appointment soon became about the fact that I'm on PrEP and the fact that I'm gay. And for me, I was sitting there being like, why is this person asking me these questions? Is he actually going to give me care? Is he scared that I have HIV? Like, I don't know where this is going. And so I was really hesitant to disclose anything. It actually made me feel quite uncomfortable. And that's who someone who is a healthcare professional and has a pretty strong uh, identity in terms of being a gay man. And so it's it's that kind of like you're, you're and I think, I can't speak for people who are gender diverse, but, you know, there's so much controversy in terms of, you know, is someone going to be able to prescribe me hormones? Are they going to dispense hormones? Uh, we've seen it in pharmacy in the past, going back, you know, even to the emergency contraceptive pill and um, PrEP, uh, again, is another one. I have instances from my research program where pharmacists turn patients away because um, they didn't know what PrEP was and they thought that you couldn't prevent HIV with a medication. And that's, you know, in Canada just a couple of years ago. So I think that power is really important, um, whether or not it's about something specific to the health needs about your sexuality or gender identity. But those kinds of instances then make every interaction um, important and every interaction you kind of approach with that. Am I going to get good care because of, you know, the way I identify? Um, and what is my root or what is my ability to actually advocate for myself um, if I feel like that's not going in the direction that I need? Yeah, this is something I'm thinking about, right? It's and and with this power comes responsibility, right? We we should be aware of it because like you said, Kyle, we are responsible then for making sure that we have the information and know what we need to know to be able to provide the best care. And that's it, Kelly. So not yeah, that's not the there's not just one solution. <laughs> We're done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we figured out the, the issue. <laughs> There's there. It is simply about awareness and education and pharmacy as a whole. This is a new topic. So when I talk to pharmacists, pharmacists want to know things, right? I think everyone listening is probably, you know, really interested and want to know. This wasn't in school. We didn't learn these things in pharmacy school. And there's limited, you know, continuing education out there um, until, you know, hopefully recently and, and what's moving forward. And it's not a criticism about the individual pharmacist. But we are now putting that into our, our educational programs. But what we're hearing from the community is, 
hey, if that pharmacist had some knowledge about gender affirmation, and it's particularly I'm thinking of a research subject from New Brunswick, they would have gone for an hour on a bus to go to that pharmacy and then an hour back rather than go to the pharmacy just around the corner because it's that powerful. And so that's why I think gender affirmation, care for the population, again, is really important. And it's simply about having a reading, reading about hormone therapy, reading about uh, issues facing the population and being able to have those conversations. And if you don't feel confident in that area, knowing someone within your circles, within your organization or within your community that you could then direct that, that patient to. Because again, I think it's just that expectation that someone might not have any knowledge can be really scary for, for some patients when they, they try to receive care. I want to spend some time talking about resources, but we're going to just park that for a little bit. Maybe let's talk about pronouns first. And Kai, I listened to your TED Talk, which was brilliant. I hope we can put a link up to the uh, TED Talk. And you spoke about pronouns. And can you give us pharmacy professionals some tips, some information about using pronouns, how we use them? And I think it's important because, you know, I think of myself, I have two hats I'm wearing here. I wear my healthcare professional hat. Mm-hmm. And I wear my, my Kelly Kislik hat and, you know, it, does it look different? Does it look different how I add pronouns in, or should I just be doing this all the time? Mm-hmm. Let's talk pronouns. Mm-hmm. Oh, pronouns. Uh, excellent. Very important topic. One that for some feels like it just appeared out of nowhere, right? <laughs> to the general population or public. And so briefly, I just want to define them because I think most people are like, don't you just remember from grade school, right? Um, and I think just uh, making sure everybody's on the same page, it's how we refer to one another in the third person. So if I'm talking with you, Kelly, about Kyle, I would refer to Kyle using he, him pronouns, which thankfully he's posted. So it's super clear for me and I don't have to make any assumptions. So there's he, she, that are the most common ones uh, that are used in our society. But of course, there are also a variety of gender neutral ones. The most common one is singular use of they, them, which we talked about briefly. So that's uh, an important one. But of course, there are also neo pronouns, such as Z and Zer is an example of that. And folks are sometimes providing those and sometimes not. One other thing I wanted to note is that there are folks who use one set of pronouns, such as myself, I use he, him. There are folks who can use multiple sets. So I have a colleague that uses she and they. So I just wanted to clarify that piece. So based on what we were talking about before, we really can't know somebody's pronouns based simply just on how they look. That's been the shortcut up until now. And generally people are right. And I think that's why it's persisted. But for the folks for whom it's incorrect, unfortunately it's incorrect a lot or most of the time. And it puts a huge burden on them uh, to either figure out whether it's safe or not to correct or to remain silent. So they're put in this very precarious position. So there is a general shift happening to create greater inclusion, to take off some of that weight for folks whose pronouns are not readily apparent to others from the outside. And that practice is something that anyone can do. It is voluntary, so we're, it's not a requirement. Uh, you know, It's people's free will to opt in or out. And really it's about exchanging pronouns in some way or another. And that just takes out the guesswork. I don't have to figure out because it's already been provided and then off to the races we are, right? You know, of course, if people don't provide, we just 
you know, don't assume and wait for more information. Uh, I like to have it as part of my introduction. I say, my name is Kai Scott. When I'm introducing myself, I use the pr he, pronouns he and him. I'm president of TransFocus. I've given a smattering of details. People can respond with however they wish, right? Um, sometimes people go, why'd you give me your pronouns? That's weird, you know? And then there's just a little micro learning moment that I can provide to folks to say, oh yeah, I just like to provide space if people wanna provide their pronouns in turn. And I think it relates really well to a farm tech world because um, I've done some shadowing in, in a pharmacy here in Halifax. And I think they've got a really good system where someone drops off a prescription or picks up a prescription, they review the information, and then they also say, oh, they have their pronouns documented on the system. So any pronouns he, him, or pronouns they, them, and yep, cool. And so you're almost recognizing that and having people you know, really think about it. And again, it's up, as Kai said, it's up to somebody if they want to share, but it, it can be a way that I think uh, farm techs can have a really major impact when um, helping to document and confirm pronouns um, for our patients. Oh, it's just so much smoother and easier. The thing is that these things might seem new and maybe a little scary for some folks, but they're actually intended to smooth out those interactions in ways that don't just help gender diverse folks. It actually helps even people who are not transgender or cisgender uh, who, whose gender expression might not be what we societally expect for that gender identity, right? I would also add that we were talking a lot about face-to-face -face interactions, but I wanted to add into the mix another common communication method for pharmacies is phones. And I will say face-to-face -face interactions, people get my pronouns correctly pretty much most of the time. However, on the phone, completely always misgendered, right? So you can see between the communication methods, somehow over the phone, my voice reg registers at a higher octave. And then I get ma'ams, I get Mrs. Scott, I get me, 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 me. And that's very anxiety producing because that's just, that's my past. And that's not who, you know, of course, that's what was assumed at birth for me as a transgender man, but that's not who I am. I'm a man. And so, you know, sometimes I correct folks if I have energy, other times I don't, right? Um, it depends on the situation, but truly if we could just also not assume over the phone, which is very difficult because we are like, oh, high octave woman, she, her pronoun, lower octave man, he, him pronouns, right? It's so automatic. But if we can pause and just be like, hey, I actually may not know. Speaking of like what Kai was saying, like how the automatic thing is to assume the person's pronouns, maybe the new automatic that we should have is when like as a pharmacy technician, when I'm receiving a prescription, one of the automatic things I do is, what are your preferred pronouns? And just make it as simple as that and then record it kind of thing. Sorry, just to add one little thing is to drop the preferred. Uh, most folks in uh, the trans and gender diverse communities generally not a big fan of the preferred. And I've heard it a lot, so totally cool that that, that came up. Uh, it's just more that the, there's not this sense of preference or choice. It's just pronouns. For sure. Thank you for pointing that out. Actually, that's one of the things that um, it's automatic for me to have said that. And um, looking at someone who is, again, somebody who is like identifies as a gay man, like I personally also don't like the term sexual preference, which isn't as common mm -hmm. before, but that's sort of like along the same lines, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I didn't prefer to be gay. I just am. Kind of thing, right so absolutely to to the point of like making that automatic to just ask what a person's 
pronouns are. I, I don't know if, if everybody is comfortable enough to just start doing that, say, tomorrow on their next shift or whatever. What is something that we can do so that we can maybe overcome that apprehension or that fear of like just asking? Yeah, it's such a good question. I, I always invite folks to, there's like four or five different ways of doing things when it comes to pronouns and just trying them out, right? Like one day, try the direct ask. Another day, you know, introduce yourself with your pronouns to model. Uh, another day, just use gender neutral language. Uh, other times, just wait and listen because people are providing information about themselves. Uh, you know, I'll say like, what kind of guy do I think I am? You know, or, you know, something like I, I refer to myself in the third person. And if people are listening, you can pick up on that information almost seamlessly. So there's so many different ways and it's not about the right way per se. Um, I think it's more just trying something and then some things will resonate personally for somebody. Some person, people are very direct and they just like, okay, I don't, I don't have time for all of this, you know, more nuanced ways. And I just want to get right to the good stuff. I try to soften it a bit by say, you know, if you wish to share, what are your pronouns, right? But it's really just about knowing what is the best fit for the person doing these practices. Yeah, I echo that. I think it's just try. Uh, don't be afraid of trying. Um, practice with your pet, then practice with a family member, friend, and then it's not as scary experience as it might make out to be. It's just different, right? It's just adding something different to our routines. And even now, I think it's, it is becoming normalized. Um, but it's kind of thinking about it in terms of what happens if someone says they don't want to share it. You know, that's fine. You can move on. But as Kai said, just try. I would also add that it's, you know, a similar practice that has been introduced and we're getting used to uh, and more proficient at is land acknowledgments. I remember 10 years ago when I started to do them, it was super awkward. I fumbled over them. I didn't know if I was doing it right. I didn't know if I was messing up the pronunciation of the nation, right? Like it's just a whole kettle of fish for me. And yet I persisted with the practice. And now it's just like evolved to where, you know, like riding a bike without the training wheels, right? So we definitely can learn these new practices and recognizing at first it'll be a little awkward, maybe even a lot awkward. And that's okay too. And that we can move beyond that into a much more comfortable version of that practice. Hi, Kyle. Can I ask how we might respond if we got pushback from someone when we used our pronouns? And I've had this experience where I'll say, I'm Kelly, I use she, her, and I get, you know, you're so woke with your pronouns or, you know, some sort of a, uh, inflammatory response to that what can I say what might how might I respond to that um, I have this situation happen too especially after I intersected my personal and professional identity and do a lot of work in this space I get the why do we need to do this and and even um I was coming home from New Zealand and some family members were talking to me about pronouns and they were why do we need to do these pronouns why should it be in my email it should just be for them referring to transgender people so we know what to call them which is offensive in its own right but again it was the way that it was stated and my response was simply you know well pronouns are you know everyone has pronouns we would like to be able to to use the correct pronouns for someone who does identify as gender diverse but it's normalizing that inclusivity. It's the more that, you know, you put it in your email signature, the more that you state it when you meet somebody, then it just normalizes it so that that person feels included as part of society. A simple statement, oh, 
okay, I'm going to put that in my email signature now. And it was just that I think sometimes people react with that negative, maybe more judgmental tone when simply it's just haven't been educated, don't understand the purpose. And I think although it can be difficult, we could, um, especially, you know, as our power as healthcare professionals and educators, use that moment as a teaching moment to really explain that, you know, it really is about, about inclusion and about affirming people's identities as a whole. Kai, do you have any extra thoughts for that one? <laughs> oh, yeah, this is a this is a big one. And I hear it quite a bit as well. And certainly down in the United States, there's all kinds of things happening. But there there is quite a bit of pushback and also here in Canada as well. I generally receive resistance as a indication of fear. And there's so much fear underneath all of that. And of course, it depends on the individual, what specific aspects of fear is. I get a lot of inadequacy. People are like, how did I not know about this? Can I do this? Like, will I be able to, you know, there's, there's so many fears underneath that I found in the work that we've done. Another thing is that people feel like they're going to be forced into something that they don't understand. They don't know what it's all about. They don't get it. It's frustrating. Why can't we go back to the way it was? It was working just fine for me uh, and others, right? It seems like, why are we doing something for such a small population? That's a very common refrain, right? And so my approach, and this certainly came up in the TEDx uh, talk that I, I, I gave, is that definitely it's voluntary underscoring that uh, this practice is always voluntary, that people are invited to it, right? As something, what um, Kyle was mentioning about creating that inclusive environment, what I call NBD, no big deal to do this thing, right? Because if only a few people are doing it, it does stick out kind of like a sore thumb, right? Just by nature of only so few doing it. But if more people are doing it voluntarily through genuine interest and understanding for why they're doing it, then it's this kind of really easy flow and uh, navigation through pronouns. And so once people realize they're not forced to, that they have an option for it, they may or opt in or not. Yep. And for me, thinking about pronouns, also, we this came up thinking about the use of, of the terms Mr., Mrs., some of the salutations mm-hmm. that, you know, my age, it was always taught. It's polite to say Mr., you know, Scott, for example, but how I heard you both say that, you know, how that lands with people when that's not their salutation of choice. I think as long as that is provided by the patient, then that is a good thing. Uh, And, you know, as part of letters or even during the interaction, because I will say it can be gender affirming. So I don't want to lose sight of that piece. Right. But it's just that it's not assumed. Right. And so if somebody were to call me Mr. Scott, I would actually really enjoy that, right? So that can be in the mix, but it just has to be set up very carefully and certainly adding gender neutral options like MX, right? So MX Dennis, right? If you're, if, and, and allowing them to opt into it. So if they don't provide it, that's not used. Oh, okay. So MX would be considered the gender neutral. And I say MX, I write MX and I say MX. Correct. Okay, learning. I was driving in today and I saw the pride flag on a service vehicle as a bumper sticker. And there was a couple of them and they all had the flag. And I thought, hmm, it was really timely considering that we were doing the podcast today. I wanted to talk about that. What are some of the things that we can do in our spaces to make them safe? 
something that came out of my research was that the community really does like to see those symbols there. They like to see representation and to see the community celebrated, but if done meaningfully. And so the example that I give is always, you know, June is typically Pride Month, sometimes July, depending where you are. We see a lot of symbols come out and then we see a lot of symbols go away at the end of that month. And although it's great that people are celebrating, it'd be nice to have those symbols, you know, like that bumper stickers are great. That's going to last for a long time, hopefully. So, you know, more long term. I think also in the research I've done in a pharmacy space, whether that's, you know, pharmacy departments in a hospital, community pharmacy, or another context, other, whether it's patient oriented or also for employees that work there that identify, having those symbols present is important, but again, only if the pharmacies or the department has invested in understanding what that community's needs are. So if you're displaying a pride flag in your window, then a person as part of the community should expect to actually receive, you know, safe, inclusive, affirmative care, or be able to have resources available within that pharmacy related to, to us LGBTQ plus community. And so I guess my kind of key point there is really not doing things performatively, but doing things with intention and meaning behind it. And we might not know exactly what that looks like right now, but it could be as simple as reading on community issues. It could be as simple as, you know, looking at pronouns as we just had that big discussion and implementing some other changes within the pharmacy um, and ensuring that staff are aware of, you know, what inclusive care actually is so that um, people feel safe. Those are some great suggestions and I echo all of them. And I just would add having specific pamphlets or resources that speak to the particular needs, the unique needs of the 2S LGBTQIA communities. And it will likely be different types of resources. It won't just maybe necessarily be one. Uh, and they're certainly out there. It just takes a little extra legwork to source them and bring them in to the mix. But just having them at the ready or even on display, even if people aren't going to speak to their identities, um, but just knowing that they're out there and available, maybe they even grab them for a friend. Uh, so there's all these ways that um, just even including in the resources can help people feel like they're considered and accounted for. Uh, both of you mentioned like what we can do as like healthcare professionals to make that safe space. I want to know the flip side. How does that look? How does that feel for that patient or that coworker or colleague who is part of that community? Yeah. It's a great question because we can often really focus on the, the problems which exist and we need to tackle them and solve them and address them. But I also like to keep in mind the vision, right? What are we going toward and what will it be like when we get there? And what that looks like, whether from what I've heard from community members or my own sense of it, is uh, ease, freedom, being able to bring things up when I need to without the hesitation and concern of how somebody else will react. It being NBD, no big deal. Nobody skips a beat or raises an eyebrow uh, when I bring up specific things related to my identity. Uh, being able to fill out forms, go to washrooms uh, without hesitation or consideration of others. It's knowing that community members that are most vulnerable in the 2S LGBTQIA, because of course I also have certain privileges as part of that community, um, you know, especially with folks with intersecting identities, there'd be free of violence, like physical and emotional. And 
for us to be, so not just accepted, but actually celebrated for what we bring to the table, because there are some very unique aspects that we do. And when included and, and tapped into and, you know, consulted, the, those things can come to bear and we can actually improve things in ways that have far reaching benefits, which I get really excited about, where we can kind of, in some instances, get beyond gender or get beyond sexuality and it, I mean, almost you have to go into the specific to get to the universal. It's that kind of dynamic, which uh, it's a bit counterintuitive, but it actually can yield a lot, which is very exciting. Yeah, and I think I can bring a perspective, Ryan, from um, thinking about things from a couple different levels. So we've talked a lot about interpersonal relations today, which is really important um, because that's kind of the core, especially of you know that pharmacy interaction. Um, communication is so foundational to to what we do but one thing that really came out of my research which was unexpected was kind of those more I call them the system-based factors and they aren't ones that aren't achievable it's things that you could actually do as a frontline care provider a farm tech a pharmacist and really influence one's experience to have that positive experience that Kai um, was describing it's things like policies and procedures making sure that you know if you have a prescribing protocol as an example is it heteronormative is it binary gender um, norms that are within that prescribing protocol is there education points that we must do because we're pharmacists that you know are really specific to one's one's gender or using you know, non-gender neutral language. Uh, it's things like representation and symbols. So as Kelly talked about um, bringing in, you know, pride symbols and resources, Kai's point was excellent again, um, making that environment feel celebrated, as Kai said, as, and included, where you've got resources that actually picture people um, within the community. Um, and even products. Uh, I had interesting um, comments from some participants. Hey, you've got vitamins for men, vitamins for women. Where are the non-binary vitamins? And then I Googled it and they exist. <laughs> You know, we can be displaying things that actually, you know, in our pharmacies that show that, you know, we are committed to the community and, and empowering the community. And then I think another big component of it, too, it's that, that feeling of safety or that feeling of freedom. So having discretion when needed using our counseling rooms on offering, not assuming that someone wants to use a counseling room, but offering that, you know, for, for any patient that might be having an interaction that one you might not assume could be stressful for that patient, but one that could be just based on their past experiences. So really looking at more of those system factors and understanding that you can help to create change within the roles that you do. And I think that would then, you know, hopefully contribute to that ideal environment that, that Kai described there. Kyle, is this what advocacy looks like in this space? I know we throw out the term advocacy and as pharmacists and pharmacy technicians, healthcare professionals, advocacy is an important part of the role we play. Is this, is this advocacy? Is there more to it? I think that, I think there's probably a definition out there that I don't know. <laughs> um, I think this is definitely part of it, Kelly. And, and when I bring people into my teaching sessions, I bring community members and one of them was a pharmacist, a, a trans pharmacist. And a point that always I remember that, that they bring across to my students is, you know, yes, the dispensing software or your, you know, your software might not be able to take that mismatch in sex versus gender because it goes to the insurance claims and things get rejected, all of these things. But this person said, you know, get on the phone. Uh, the more people that are calling that, you know, software company to say, let's make a change with this or the insurance company, how can we change this? The more people in that space that are actually having those conversations is what's actually going to drive change. And that's, I think, you know, part of allyship. That's part of, you know, advocacy where we're not just relying on the community to try to be the ones to 
advocate for these changes. But when everyone gets on board and everyone recognizes that, hey, these are actually systemic issues and things that we can address and we're actually louder and probably more powerful in strength in numbers, then I think that's when we can actually um, create real change. And I can't tell you how many times TransFocus has been called in because it's been the fifth call that a vendor has received from, you know, not necessarily pharmacy, but from other organizations, say their clients saying, hey, we, we can't use this anymore. This is not working for us. We're, we're excluding key parts of our, our demographics here. And, and what are you going to do? And then they say, well, we don't know what we're going to do. Let's go ask some, some experts and, and get some advice, right? So things do change when people make calls. It is It seems small and minor, but it actually is just going that that little extra mile uh, to be a part of a larger growing voice calling for inclusion and then people taking action correspondingly. And I think that's being strategic. It's being uh, an ally. It doesn't necessarily have to take a lot of time too, right? We have this kind of preconceived notion that advocacy is out in the streets and it can be that, you know, making a huge effort or rewriting something. And it can be that as well. But it can also be these more subtle things that amass to much larger things. Okay, being strategic, the small things, and when many small things can come together, it can make big change. One more theme, and then we'll start to wrap things up. And it's around supporting 2SLGBTQIA plus colleagues. And Kyle, I just saw your paper, Born This Way, that you co-authored, that spoke to this. And I think that something that um, hit me and almost kind of hurt my heart a little bit was the high risk involved with disclosing um, this in a professional space. And so I just wanted to spend some time chatting about, you know, what you might say to someone who is a pharmacy professional that has, that identifies as 2SLGBTQIA+, um, what you might say to those of us that can support um, our colleagues in this space, some thoughts around this. And Kyle, we'll start with you. Kai, I want to hear your thoughts. And Ryan, where, where you're at. Yeah, born this way. We're trying to um, put some lyrics into our papers these days <laughs> to make things more interesting. But it was really fitting for that, that paper. This is a very good question, Kelly. Uh, I concealed my identity for many reasons um, until I was Oh, just a few years ago until I moved to New Zealand, um, largely being it wasn't safe for me to be out in the workplace in the countries that I lived in. Uh, but when I moved to New Zealand, I, I came out and I remember the airplane taking out of the Middle Eastern airspace. I pressed um, posts on my big Facebook post and then I landed in Switzerland and I had all of these wonderful messages. And that was great. Um, and I was out out personally and then I came out professionally and the the institution when I when I went to New Zealand knew that I, I had or that I was gay they, they wrote a whole profile on me and but what I didn't know is that that was now going to expose me to all the instances of discrimination the microaggressions um, all of the stigma um, looks of judgment that I didn't I could have just ignored when I was concealing because I just pretended that that didn't relate to me. So I didn't really actually attack that head on. An example is sometimes I'd be in a meeting or I'd be in a coffee room and someone might have a comment that might be um, perceived as anti-LGBTQ as an example. And then everyone would look to you 
And then they look for your response. And you just kind of want to go into your phone because you don't want to have to be the one to deal with that at that time. Yes, it's kind of hurtful and impactful, but now you've got that extra pressure of other people wondering how you're processing that. You're at the forefront and the, and the center of that in the workplace. And it can be another burden to take on in workplaces when, you know, that should be a safe place where we can go perform our duties, you know, interact with our colleagues and, uh, you know, really be successful in what we do. And that's not to say that, you know, like my identity is now really central part of my my workplace especially because of the work that I do and people will make mistakes you know all the time people will probably you know say something that could be deemed offensive and um, sometimes and that's as Kai was saying before like that's fine as long as we have a culture where we're able to learn from each other and and, and correct each other I think one of the the greatest things that people can do within the workplace that I've found is people getting on board. So not me being the one to be like, hey, let's celebrate Pride Month. But, you know, someone who, you know, identifies as a cis straight man or cis straight woman saying, hey, let's, you know, what are we doing for Pride Month? And, and really like initiating those conversations, which yes, I'm happy to contribute to, but sometimes waiting for the identifiers in the room to, you know, take that initiative can be an extra burden. Um, also situations where maybe something was witnessed uh, in a workplace. Um, there's a lot of controversy around this, I would say, and in, in some of the teaching that I've done, where let's say you're in a big meeting or you're in a staff meeting, or you're even just behind the pharmacy and someone says something and there's an identifier present. You know, some people think, oh, they should be confronted right away, you know, and corrected, which might be the case if you know that identifier, you know, that would be safe for them. But sometimes it might be having, you know, yourself as an ally um, talk to that person that maybe made that comment after the fact so that that doesn't have to happen in front of the identifier. So there's no feeling of guilt or shame that might come up in that certain circumstance. Um, because sometimes it can be really awkward if things are happening in the workplace and someone's trying to call it out and you're the one identifier and you think that, you know, everyone's trying to act on your behalf as an example. So it's really, you know, trying to support our colleagues, support um, the people that we, we work with, um, but making sure that we're not overburdening them, as well as um, ensuring that they feel safe. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's just it resonates so strongly in, in what you're talking about, just kind of being out there and all kinds of things flying at one. It can be a lot on top of the stress of the job itself, right? So it's just very much cumulative. And, and certainly when I came out in the mining industry as transgender, <laughs> like that was really, really scary. And certainly it's, it's not the same as, as pharmacy, but still there's the kind of how will it be received? What will happen? Um, there's just that lack of control and a lot of uncertainty. And one thing I'll offer, especially with employees, is you don't necessarily need to know if somebody is in the room uh, as, as part of the 2S LGBTQIA communities. Some people may not be out or they don't feel it's necessary to share on that. And so you may actually have people in the room that you don't know are part of that. So irrespective of if you know somebody or not, it's really important to respond to those, especially jokes I find uh, can kind of be these tricky little places where people start to make fun of pronouns or the exchange of pronouns. And, you know, of course, are we laughing at people or with people? Are we, you know, lifting them up? Are we breaking them down? You know, there's various ways that that dynamic, those dynamics can be sensed. 
and then responded to. We don't need to clobber people over the head, obviously, but certainly having some sort of response, whether in the moment or after the fact, I think is really important. And that'll be really key, not just for uh, if there's uh, trans folks or trans uh, 2SLGBTQIA folks, but there's also folks who have loved ones. So this impacts them as well. So they might be a partner uh, of somebody or they might have a child, right? So, you know, you just don't know what somebody people's stories are and their connection points to this these communities that we want to, as much as we can, show and, and be present for that in ways that are caring and compassionate for the other person because they might be coming from a place of ignorance in which case you could be like, hey, let's go grab some coffee. It's clear that you have questions or there's still a kind of some lack of understanding and I'm happy to help, you know, as an ally. And you can say I'm still learning too, right? You don't have to have all the answers to step in. So those are some of the things, those um, things that may not be aware of that we want to be sensitive to who's in the room. I'm going to come back to microaggressions for a second. This is also something there was information in the um, course that many of our listeners took on microaggressions and, you know, learning about it. It's interesting to me how I've just been more aware of it and hearing them. Um, I'm interested to hear Kai and Kyle about your thoughts when we are bystanders. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but when we're bystanders of those microaggressions, Kai, you kind of alluded to this, but you know how we get involved, we might have the conversation at the time, we might have it afterwards, but you know, how do we respond when we've heard something and maybe it's even a pronoun, like the misuse of a pronoun. We know that someone actually uses a different one. Like how do we um, address errors as bystanders? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so important. I would say, especially with microaggressions, cause sometimes they can be subtle and sometimes even people think they're paying a compliment and they're actually doing quite the opposite or it's received uh, in a way that's harmful. Uh, so people are, are intending the, the good impact and then it veers off course and, and they're surprised or they never hear about it. Um, could be the situation. Trans women get this a lot. Oh, you're beautiful for a trans woman, right? This comes in many different flavors. It's not just trans women. It's any other, you know, marginalized uh, uh, category of women, but I will say that that can be quite pernicious and, you know, people are trying to be positive and affirming, but unfortunately go down a trajectory. As the bystander, you can pull that person aside and help them unpack that in ways that, you know, I know your intentions were good, but unfortunately you're indicating that you were surprised that uh, a trans woman could be beautiful and that we're even talking about women and beauty and having a particular standard, right? And just helping them understand those nuances will help them to avoid it in the future, um, maybe even rectify it with that individual, depending on the circumstance. Uh, in a, invasive questions are another really key one. Uh, I know this is on sexual diversity and gender diversity. How do you have sex? You know, like that comes up in the workplace and I, it just, people don't realize what they're saying sometimes, right? Or how do you know you're non-binary? I don't get it. And the, the implication is you've got to explain it to me because I don't understand rather than taking the ownership on oneself. And again, a bystander can bring in and say, hey, I know you're curious. I know you're wanting to better understand 
this person is not your source for that, you know, right? Just those, those gentle redirects really make a difference to take off some of that load. And you, again, don't have to understand everything. You can position yourself as a learner saying, hey, I'm just getting up to speed on this as well. These are things that I've, I've heard about. And do you want to explore more together so we can be better allies? You know, again, those invitations are really helpful to addressing microaggressions. We don't need to be heavy handed. We don't need to shame anyone for what they're doing, unless it's very intentionally hateful speech. That's a different matter. <laughs> There's legislation and legal ways to address that, but I'm thinking more of the subtle varieties. Those can be addressed one-on-one uh, -on -one in a gentle and affirming way. I think the only thing I'd, I'd really add to that, because um, I, I hear that so much, I think like two days ago, I got told, oh, I could never tell you're gay. So then my response was like, I guess I need to start to paint my nails because I'm, I want to be known that I'm gay. It's not something that I'm trying to hide anymore. Uh, I think the only thing I can add is, because I think Kai did a really good job of talking about how to maybe address it. But one of the greatest things I think people can do is just learn, learn more. Um, I come across lots of allies who say, hey, I just, I wanted to act, but I just didn't feel it was my place or I didn't have the confidence. Um, read, Take these sessions, improve your knowledge, because with knowledge, with those skills will come the confidence to actually act um, and, and to have those conversations, like Kai was saying, um, if you are a bystander, because sometimes if you're not confident or you don't have that, you don't feel you've got that the knowledge there or your understanding of the situation, I, I understand how that can limit someone's actions. But um, um, it'd be great if we could you know, get to a place where we are able to, to have those conversations. And I think the way Kai outlined them was, was a, a really great strategy. I'll add one thing to the mix is you can loop back. For a while, didn't think about that, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And people think they have to address it in the moment. And that's the only chance you'll ever get. You can be like, something was about that was off, like to yourself, and then go talk to some people, whether somebody you trust, uh, who's maybe more competent on the issue, doesn't have to be necessarily what, somebody with lived experience, and say, hey, this felt off, this is what happened, what do you think? And then they might give you some ideas, insight, go, like Kyle said, learn something online. And then loop back to that person and say, hey, can we revisit this conversation that we had? This was said, and I, I didn't know quite what was off about it, but I, I reflected it on it, and this is what I, I think. And, you know, can we talk about it, right? So there's, there's, there's so many ways to do this, and loop back is really key tool, at least for me, because sometimes it can be kind of deer in headlights, like, oh, no, I know there's something wrong here, but I just can't put my finger on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're just not sure how to respond in that moment. Or sometimes it'll be, you know, in my bed that night that I just, oh my gosh, Kelly. <laughs> right. So thank you, Kai, for reminding us that we can come back to it. Right. It, it isn't too late to write something that might've gone wrong and it's uncomfortable. Kyle and I heard you say this and Kai, like, and it is uncomfortable, but I've also heard all three of you say that you have had a lot of moments of discomfort in healthcare and, you know, that you haven't told the truth to some of your healthcare providers because of feeling uncomfortable. And so, you know, it's something I can do. I can get a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> um, to support, to support people. So thank you for that. 
I'll throw in one last point. And it's around that point about comfort. So sometimes when we see things in this space, we get, you know, surveys out about people. Um, oh, are you comfortable providing care to to us LGBTQ plus or to us LGBTQIA plus people? And it's not comfort, it's confidence, because you wouldn't say, are you comfortable providing care to someone with diabetes? It's, it's a whole nuance with that word. And so that's why I'm really big about confidence, because you just might not be confident in this situation. But really, you don't, I don't think people have the choice to be comfortable it's it's more about hey you might feel uncomfortable but you're really thinking about confidence and the more confident you are then you're actually going to be able to provide that care amazing reframe confidence and that's where i learn i listen i read i yeah okay kyle and kai i'm gonna i i want our final words to be your words um ryan do you have a key takeaway something that is that landed with you during our conversation today your your key takeaway so many, but um, some of the ones that uh, really did resonate with for me was um, the fact that it was a, it's an honor to have somebody's personal information and to see it in that way, instead of like looking at as uh, you know a checklist of things of information that we just need to document and put down, and respect that you know that trust is there. They are trusting us with their personal information, so that's one of the big things for me. For me, it is that it's a big deal for me to make this no big deal <laughs> for uh, the, the people that I encounter in my pharmacy. And so it's about creating these safe spaces and learning and listening and doing the things that I need to do to make sure I am keeping safe spaces. Hi. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation and just really wanted to um... Thank you for having a great space that you've created for us to, to step in, both Kyle and I, to really have this earnest, candid conversation. Some of it's tough. It's tough to hear that people are hurting. And then we, of course, we want to jump in and, and fix it right away. Sometimes it is just about listening and to, to the, the things that people encounter and then in concert with them, uh, figure out a pathway forward. And I think conversations like this will help yield that change. Sometimes it feels a bit slow. I know members of, of our communities can sometimes feel the, you know, the pressure of that. And we are working as, as quickly as we can, but also thoughtfully and deliberate so that we're creating something that actually makes sense and can really bring us to a much better place for, for everyone. So I'm really excited and also really thankful. Yeah, same here. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. And as you can see, the sun in Halifax is bright because I think it's been, you know, put me in such a good mood being here with you all today. Um, and I really want to thank Kai. I've learned a lot from, from just this conversation with Kai. And I always um, really appreciate the chance to engage with, with community members and people doing, you know, such great work in this space. I think that, you know, as a whole, as a profession, uh, we do have um, uh, work to do, but I think we're moving in a great direction. We're a small profession but we're mighty and uh, the more of us that get on board and, and create these spaces um, for patients I think the better healthcare outcomes we will achieve we are the most accessible healthcare provider out there and so ensuring that we we have spaces that people feel comfortable and confident and affirmed in their identities uh, within the neighborhoods where they live is important and and um, definitely we can have a major role in really influencing everyone's care but specifically for the 2s LGBTQ QIA plus community. Hi, and Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today, sharing all of your 
expertise and your experience. Um, it has been an amazing conversation. And uh, I really, like you both said, hope that this is a start to many great conversations to come. So Kyle and Kai, thank you so much for being here. Um, to all of our listeners, thank you for being here too. Whether you are dutifully listening, cautiously curious, or keenly motivated, or really anything else in between, we hope that we've given you a little bit more of what you needed. Um, keep counting, keep caring, keep learning, and keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. Thanks all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacy Perspectives, Providing Safer Spaces. Our podcast hosts are Kelly, Kim, and Ryan. This podcast is a joint project created by Alberta College of Pharmacy and Continuing Professional Development for Pharmacy Professionals based out of the University of Saskatchewan. Our producers are Mary Fraser and Pamela Timmonson. Editing was done by Anwen Dyko, and our music is by BJ Cat.